Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, we're speaking with Mario Zechner, developer, benevolent dictator of LibGDX, and author of the best-selling book, Beginning Android Games. Mario, welcome on. Thanks for having me. I know that you and I met a couple of years ago, I believe, at, well, face-to-face, -face, I think we met the first time last year at Java Zone. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And I think... So initially, we got to speaking around uh, some project that you were working on in the past, which we'll touch on, on later a little bit, which was called RoboVM. Mm -hmm. And uh, you took an interest in Kotlin. And I said, you know, I've always taken an interest in gaming. <laughs> and I've never done gaming. So I think I need to speak to you about gaming a little bit. And that's why we're here. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about LibGDX. I mean, what is it exactly? So LibGDX was my attempt to create a cross-platform game development framework um, where people would primarily use Java uh, or a JVM language as the first uh, class citizen programming language to create their games. Um, I guess to some degree it was kind of inspired by the fact that Minecraft actually was written in Java and that I've been part of the Java gaming community for quite a bit. Um, I've done a lot of C, C++ before that, even some basic and assembler in DOS times. But uh, with the advent of Android, um, Java seemed to be the, the way to go. Like when I started with Android in 2009, uh, there wasn't an NDK. So there was no way to actually write games in C or C++. Uh, and it's still a little cumbersome. So um, in late 2010, I decided uh, I need to create something that makes creating games for Android a little easier. And back then, the iteration times between changing your code and deploying it to the device to test your code changes were really bad, like minutes <laughs> if you did it really, really well. Um, so what I did was I essentially created an abstraction layer that let me develop the game on a desktop while making sure that the same code also works on Android. Um, this allowed me to quickly iterate on my games um, and at some point I thought I could share this with the world. So I cleaned up a little bit and released it as open source. Um, and over the past couple of years, um, a little community or actually quite a big community formed around libgdx and helped bring it to new platforms and add new functionality and make it quite a successful game development framework. And when you say new platform, so initially this runs on the JVM, but what other platforms does it run on right now? So currently we run on Android, which is a simple target since they have the Android runtime or Dalvik on older Android versions, which essentially compiles Java bytecode to Dalvik uh, bytecode, and then it just runs. We also target iOS um, with the help of two different uh, technologies. One is called RoboVM, um, a thing I worked on previously, and the other one's called Intel MultiOS Engine. They are now both uh, open source and can be used to compile Java bytecode to iOS native executables. Uh, obviously, we target all of the desktop platforms, so Windows, Linux, and Mac, and we also target the web by compiling Java source code, not bytecode, to JavaScript via the Google Web Toolkit. That's nice. So you can actually create games basically targeting the web, right? Yes. That's nice. Uh, you also mentioned BlackBerry. I mean, I saw somewhere in the, I think it was in the, on the site that you target BlackBerry. I, I mean, before yeah. you tell me why, um, <laughs> is that true? 
It is true, apart from the fact that BlackBerry essentially scrapped their entire mobile division and operating system, and with that, any future phones that could run LibGX applications. Uh, it's let me let me put it that way. BlackBerry essentially allowed to run Android applications with some minor modifications, so that made it very easy to just take the LibGX Android backend and uh, make it work on BlackBerry. A similar case is with uh, Yola. Um, that's an operating system and phone. Oh, I think the operating system is actually called Sailfish OS or Sail OS or something like that. Anyway, so Yola is a similar case in that they have a Linux core uh, mobile operating system that also uh, allows to run not only native applications, but also Android applications. Uh, so that's how we got on BlackBerry. Obviously, we should uh, update our website and remove the BlackBerry line because nobody's using BlackBerry anymore. Well, I mean, I, I probably nobody's using it for games, I would say. Yeah. I mean, every time I've seen someone carrying a BlackBerry, it's always they're carrying a BlackBerry and, and an iPhone or an Android, right? And they're using one one for messaging and then the other one for everything else in their life. So I was just curious, like, why BlackBerry, if there was a high demand for it or something? Okay. No, it was just a checkbox, really. So I come a little bit, my background is on the .NET side, so to speak, although I've not been doing much .NET lately. And of course, on the .NET side, there is this other gaming engine, which is called Unity, right? Yes. And mostly, I think, probably the majority of people that do Unity are using C Sharp. I, I don't know if exactly F Sharp is. I think actually you can write in F Sharp as well. But how does this compare to Unity? I mean, are you kind of offering the same thing that Unity developers have on top of the CLR? Yeah, no, we, we, we actually don't. So there's different categories of how you can approach your game development. A lot of AAA studios are actually still creating their own in-house game engines. So they write all the things from scratch. They pull in a couple of third-party components, say for video play, uh, playback or compression or what have you. But essentially, they're writing their own thing. And over the last couple of years, a couple of engines uh, have started to actually be licensed. So AAA studios don't have to pay that much. And also there was Unity and Unity uh, said, okay, kind of screw the AAA market for a little while. Let's focus on the small guys. Any game development is becoming a thing. So what Unity provides is something called an engine, uh, which means it takes care of a lot of things for you. It essentially dictates how you have to write your game to some degree. Unity is quite flexible, but um, there's a bunch of things that are harder to achieve with Unity than they are with, say, a game framework. Uh, frameworks are more something like loose modules that you can put together and then create an engine of to on top of that. Um, and that's what libgdx is. Unity also comes with a pretty okay uh, UI and editor, visual editor which makes a lot of things easier, especially for people who do not program. There is also things like plugins for visual programming and so on and so forth. LibGX is not that. LibGX is a set of modules uh, and implementation of those modules on different platforms that make it really easy to build a specifically tailored engine for your game. Okay, and when you mentioned AAA, I assume that this refers to kind of the high-end gaming companies? Yeah, that refers to the Blizzards and Activisions and the A's of the world. Okay, I see. So when you're talking about these modules, can you give an example of like what a module would be? What would I get out of LibGDX modules? What, what type sure. of functionality there is? 
Yeah. So LibGX is actually designed bottom up to some degree. So at the bottom, we have low level modules that essentially take over or abstract uh, windows management, uh, drawing, loading files, playing back audio, getting input from touch devices or keyboards or mice or game pads. Um, that's the base. Um, and they are expressed with um, interfaces. So we model them with interfaces and then we implement those for each platform using the platform specific APIs. For example, in terms of graphics, uh, the lowest level you can access in libgdx is OpenGL. And OpenGL on a desktop and a browser and a mobile is kind of similar, but not quite. So we have an abstraction layer that kind of lets you talk to OpenGL on the different implementations uh, through the same interface. Uh, another example would then be going one step up the layer. So based on these um, core modules, so to speak, we built abstractions or rather, I wouldn't want to call them utility or helper functions because that's kind of nasty. <laughs> Too many but, of them. Yes, no. <laughs> but for example, uh, creating uh, an image on the GPU, uh, a texture, uh, takes about 20 to 30 lines of code if you use OpenGL uh, directly. Uh, so we create a class called Texture, which does all this dirty low-level work for you and gives you a very nice API that just takes a single line of code to instantiate a texture on the GPU, stuff like that. So that that's in the middle layer. And then on top of that layer, we built semi-engine functionality. For example, we have a complete uh, user interface API um, that lets you build super sophisticated graphical user interfaces, not only for games, they are also used for applications like, uh, I don't know, Spine is a skeletal animation software for the desktop. A couple of universities use it uh, to help with their visualization of data sets and, and interact with them by sliders and all, all stuff like that. So this is essentially what libgdx provides. You can pick and choose which modules you want to use from which layer. You can start with the bottom layer and just do everything yourself, gaining the benefit that your code will run on all these platforms. Or you can go up layers and uh, reuse a lot of code that is bulletproof and production tested. Right. So, and one of, one of the things that you mentioned regarding Unity, you said that there's kind of like a visual designer, right? So yes. when I imagine gaming and writing games, one of the things that really puts me off is not only do I have to come up with a story, not only do I have to control all of these other things, but I have to be an awesome graphic designer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to draw those uh, avatars and those pixels, uh, pictures and backgrounds and everything. Does libgdx help me with any of that? No, but neither does Unity or any other game engine, really. Um, there is a concept called procedural uh, generation, which you can use to create art, so to speak. Uh, uh, a good example is like a terrain or a landscape that can be automatically generated just from a bunch of heuristics and, and small algorithms. But anything that goes towards uh, things like uh, characters or, or nice background art and so on and so forth, that is something for which you either have to find an artist or compromise and say, my art is going to be just flat shapes and that's it. Okay. Yeah, and, and we'll pick that up. I want to get to that when we start, talk a little bit about um, actual indie developers. But let's come back to Kotlin 
uh, which obviously the show is called Talking Kotlin. So we've got to throw Kotlin yeah. in there somehow, right? And <laughs> so you and I, as I said, we met when, when you had some interest around Kotlin in, in the work that you're doing with RoboVM. So mm -hmm. what really attracted you uh, in regard to Kotlin? Like, why did you pay attention to it? Uh, because it was concise and still readable. That's like the, the best description I can give you. Um, I'm not one of those people who feel the pain of Java too much because I know my IDEs, um, but it's still a lot of typing and it's also a lot of reading uh, that you have to do in Java and Kotlin kind of hits the sweet spot between uh, being concise but still readable. Like if I look at a Scala code base, especially one that uses Scala C or Scala set, my eyes kind of gauge out because uh, it's really hard to follow. Uh, code is not only to be written, but also to be read. And I, I believe Kotlin hits a good spot there in terms of productivity and readability and maintainability. And the other, um, the other thing that uh, made me pay attention to it was that the standard library was designed in a way so that it's compatible with more resource. I mean, you, maybe you didn't design it like that, but that is essentially what you did. Uh, it, it works in resource constrained uh, environments. Uh, for example, on Android, the garbage collector is still a problem, um, and that especially shows its ugly face when you do stuff like iterators and collection-related stuff, where stuff gets just allocated left and right. And in a game, that's not good, um, because you want to hit 16 uh, milliseconds per frame, and if your garbage collector comes and takes away 200 milliseconds, you get stutter and, and so forth and so on. So with Kotlin, it's actually really easy to kind of write uh, JVM code, so to speak, that is GC friendly, that kind of allows you to control uh, the amount of garbage you produce uh, and thus makes it more real-time capable. And do you see anything in terms of benefits and specifically, I mean, one of the th strong points of Kotlin has been the ability that you kind of can create your own DSL, so to speak, even if there are many DSLs. Do you see any fit for that in the gaming uh, community, like in terms of your library, for instance, creating mm -hmm. DSLs around specific, um, whether it's the modules or types of games or what have you? Mm -hmm. Well, there's definitely a couple of areas where uh, game developers can benefit from these features. One example would be uh, user interfaces. Uh, we all know and love and hate user interface APIs. <laughs> they can be really cumbersome. And uh, I, I believe that with Kotlin, it's very easy to kind of write an abstraction on top of the more fugly user interface API to make it more, how should I put it? Uh, there's a term for it, which I, fluent, yeah, to make it a fluent API. I believe Anko, Anko, Anko does this for Android, for example. Yeah, it does, yeah, for the views for Android, yeah. Yeah, and I could imagine something like that for game UI or UI in real-time environments as well. It makes things really nice uh, and, and again easy to read and maintain which i love <laughs> a lot <laughs> uh yeah there's there's other areas uh, for example uh, within game development over the last say 10 years there's been a movement towards data-driven game uh, game programming uh, that is you try to get away from your uh, class hierarchies and uh, nested yeah uh, highly nested classes and stuff like that towards reusable components. Um, so there's this concept called entity component systems, where your entities, they make up your game objects, be they a character, a background, or a tile, or whatever you have, are essentially just bags of components. Um, and with Kotlin's data classes, 
um, that is really easy and really nice to kind of model. Uh, where in Java, I would have to write 100 lines of code. In Kotlin, I just drop like five lines of code and get all the getters and setters and, and all other benefits like uh, uh, generated equals and hash and so on and so forth, which again helps maintainability because the less code and the more readable the code is, the easier it is to change it and maintain it. And what about areas in terms of, for instance, let's say movements, right? I mean, any game, any character can have some movements. Do you see a fit there for defining a DSL that defines how a character can move or how to position things, etc.? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, in LibGDX, we have a very lightweight state machine kind of API that allows you to combine sequences of actions. Um, for example, you want your character to move five units upwards, and then you want it to wait, and then you want it to move five units to the right, and so on and so forth, like a guard or something like that. Um, you could model that with our sequences. Now, since our sequences are coded in Java, it's still a fluent API, but it's not the nicest fluent API. So this is where Kotlin can come in and where you can kind of wrap this API or re-implement it yourself and make it a sort of DSL that is specifically tailored to this use case of I got an entity or a game object and I wanted to execute specific things in a specific order with this and that timing or this and that goal. Um, there is one feature I believe the Kotlin guys are working on, which is continuations. Am I right? Yes, correct. Yes. Once these hit, everybody will be super happy because these state machines um, are fun as long as um, as long as you don't have things like delays or waiting for something. So having generators or co continuations would make this amazing. For example, .NET or the CLR has continuations and it's something that's been, been used in Unity for years now by game programmers because it makes uh, those state machines a lot easier to implement and a lot easier to reason about. So uh, I'm looking forward to the day when Kotlin has continuations. Yeah, so that's part of the whole um, uh, coroutines of the generic way in which Kotlin is implementing the async await or the yields or the you know yeah. asynchronous programming, and that would that should be available in one point one. So that will come out eventually, quite soon, hopefully. It's cool because I mean that's what I was thinking. You know, one of the other aspects of gaming, of course, is not only the difficulty, especially if you're not artistic of drawing scenarios and characters and that, but it's also maintaining that state, right? Of yeah. every step in the game, how things progress, how you're meant to manage everything. And that's where libgdx then does help you, right? With managing that state. Yes, to some degree, depending on which modules you choose to, to use. Uh, for example, we have stuff for physics that manage this and abstract it away for you. So it's quite, kind, quite more easy to deal with that kind of state. And one of the things that we touched upon briefly was you were talking about performance and garbage collection, right? And how uh, Kotlin with the stringent um, rules that it applies is, you know, it works well in that scenario. But one question that I have, so libgdx you output to multiple platforms, right? Mm -hmm. And if I create something, a game, for instance, on a on my on my Mac or on on a, on a PC and it's running well because I've got a very powerful processor, etc. Supposedly, I could take that same code and then run it through and have it output natively to iOS or to target Android, right? Yep. Don't you ever come across the the problem that when an application, you know, sorry, when a game performs well on a on a PC, 
won't perform that well on the iOS version because of whether it's garbage collection or whatever that could influence the, the performance of the code you're writing. So what I'm trying to say is that while the promise of write once, run everywhere is great, does that really work in terms of gaming where you require you know, good performance? I would rephrase it to write once and then test it everywhere, which sounds, <laughs> which sounds terrible, but that's just the way it is. Obviously, the, the, the performance characteristics of a mobile phone are still nowhere near as good as those of a desktop PC. However, by designing your API in a specific way, you can make your user aware of, of those those bits and pieces that will be responsible for your game running perfectly on a desktop, but really crappy on the mobile platform. Um, to give you an example, we force people to think about the size of their textures, the number of textures they have, whether they use alpha blending, which is a very, still a very um, expensive operation on mobile, especially it's for the, if it's for the entire screen multiple times per frame. So our APIs kind of nudge you in the direction where your code has to be um, designed or, or written in a specific way that makes it very, uh, very likely that your code won't perform terribly on mobile. Obviously, at the end of the day, nothing beats a profiler. So if you run into those issues, regardless of following the best practices that we lay out via guides and API, uh, you should be able to kind of to kind of compensate for the missing performance on mobile. If you write a 3D game that uses the latest OpenGL version and does screen space ambient occlusion and deferred rendering and focus cone tracing, it's obviously not going to run on mobile. Um, and there's nothing any engine can do for you. One thing I have to say is that with LibGX being a more programming-centric uh, engine, um, the people using it are usually a little bit more, I wouldn't call it knowledgeable, but more aware of, of these facts that in, influence your performance. Whereas in engines with like Unity, where you are visually designing and where not only programmers, but also artists and, and non-programmers are using the engine, there might come a point for an artist or a non-programmer where they deploy to mobile and then they have no idea what's going on. So yeah, the promise of write once, run anywhere is, can, can I curse on this podcast? <laughs> you can do whatever you want on this podcast. <laughs> well, I only curse once and uh, write once, run anywhere is bullshit. Yeah. And everybody knows it. So uh, we try to help, but at the end of the day, it's your own responsibility. And anybody, anyone who tells you otherwise that this is possible is wrong and is lying to you. So you know that Kotlin is targeting native, right? Uh, yeah. The team is working on native. Where do you see that fit in? Do you see that having any impact on, on what you're doing and with LibGDX? Well, it depends on the way that uh, Kotlin native is going to work. My assumption would be that it is a, a source translator and not a bytecode tra byte translator. So that means that it will mainly focus on pure Kotlin applications. Um, for libgdx, that's kind of a problem in that sense that it's very unlikely that we're going to rewrite all the Java code in Kotlin. Um, what our plan was is to, we have a setup application that lets people generate projects for them to make this cross-platform setup easier. We wanted to actually add a Kotlin project template into that so people have an easier time starting out with Kotlin at libgdx. Um, Running that through Kotlin native, if it works like I think it's going to work, is probably not 
gonna work <laughs> just because you you probably can't handle the java portion of the code and do you have a lot of people using kotlin i mean are you do people ping you and say you know i want to use kotlin with libgdx or how do i get started with kotlin yeah definitely uh, like about a year and a half ago when people finally realized that kotlin is amazing for android development people also started realizing hey i could use this for my libgx game so since Kotlin is very easy to integrate uh, in, in our build system, we use Cradle, um, most people didn't even have to ask how to get started because it was just like two lines of code in the Cradle build file or something like that. So there wasn't a lot of questions, but there was a lot of reports of, hey, I'm using Kotlin now. It's so much easier. Like there's a guy called Maximilian Sosk. He's a indie developer um, and he writes amazing single person games uh, who's currently working on a game called Drifter and it's all Kotlin. Uh, it still nice. uses the Java libgx stuff, but it's all Kotlin, and it's it's made its life so much easier, apparently, uh, especially in combination with something like JRebel, uh, which I'm not sure I should mention on this podcast, but these tools... You can mention you... whatever you want, as I said. Okay. <laughs> We're completely free. <laughs> okay, okay. Like, JRebel in combination with Kotlin, like, not having to write a lot of code, and then having something that can hot swap pretty much anything on your desktop VM makes game development so much easier. Yeah. Um, and 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 he's very very happy with it. We also have to we we built on top of a library called the lightweight Java gaming toolkit LWJGL, uh, which wraps native APIs like OpenGL, OpenAL, and so on and so forth. And they completely switched the entire code base to Kotlin. Um, that includes uh, GNI bindings generator as well as the uh, API generator on the JVM side, and they are also very happy. Not so much in the beginning because Kotlin's compile times weren't that great, but with incremental builds now, everything's super rosy. Let's talk a little bit about indie game developers because I was going to the libgdx website and there are, I think, something like 350 pages that I had to scroll through <laughs> to see all of the different games that you're aware that have been written with libgdx and people have submitted, right, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Is yeah, it? yeah. so you're not aware of actually all the games that are written with libgdx no. yeah. it's no. kind of the same situation with us and kotlin and so that's a lot of games and there are other like is the indie game developer community that large are there a lot of independent game developers um well it depends on who you count as an indie game developer uh, if you are talking about people who try to make the living off of it there's not that many. Who Which was actually, my next question. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's many that try, but most of those fail. It's just a hard market. Uh, um, but there is a, a, a huge indie game development community, and they don't necessarily all gravitate towards a single tool like Unity or LibGDX or Unreal Engine. They just pick and choose. Most of them are very experimental uh, since m most of them don't rely on it uh, for paying the bills. So they try all, all the technologies, make some game jam games or some prototypes that never get finished. Uh, but the community is huge. If someone wants to ga get into the game development, what kind of characteristics do you need? I mean, do you, do you need a strong background in maths? Do you, artistic, we, we've agreed that it's best to probably hire an artist, right? But are there any specific areas that you have to have like uh, a strong point in? Well, it obviously depends on the game you're making. Uh, for example, if you're doing something like a Pong or Asteroids or Tetris or any of the games of old, 
for example, the math skills that you require aren't that exquisite. Um, if, if you know a little bit about vectors and a little bit of trigonometry, you're, you're set to go. Um, for more complicated games, there's not only some more mathematical knowledge you need, especially in 3D, but there's also more programming skills that you need to make this fly. Um, that is something that a lot of people using Unity, for example, hit. Um, it, it's really hard for a non-programmer non to kind of fix those performance issues. You, you see the visual editor and you put everything in there and then nothing runs at a frame rate that's, that's acceptable. Um, so I believe that the skill set you require scales with the with the project you aspire to make. Um, and you can start out with little to no programming knowledge, and no math knowledge and no artistic skills and then just focus on one or focus on all of them uh, as much as possible to, to become better. If someone does want to get into this, what is a good place for them to start? Well, you go onto the libgx page and then you go click on the download button then you get a little java application the swing application actually uh, and that will pull in all the things you need to start developing provided you have the jdk and eclipse or intellij installed um, and then if you want to know about the apis and how to do stuff we have the most extensive wiki on github uh, which is also linked on the web page uh, that should walk you through all the different modules and what they can do we also have a ton of example games um, that you can inspect and, and look at. They are obviously not super complicated, but they give you different things like how do I do a 2D game, how do I do a platformer game, how do I do a 3D game, a very simple one. So there's a lot of information on the website and you just have to follow the rabbit. And of course, there's a book that you might know of, anything that... <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, the, the biggest misconception about the book is that it's about LibGX. It's actually not. I didn't want to tie in a commercial thing with LibGX because that's not the way I work. Uh, the book is actually mainly for people who want to start programming games on Android. It does have some concepts that LibGX also has, like the abstractions that you make to make things easier to use. Um, but other than that, it's not about LibGX. However, if you purchase the book and work through the examples, you will feel right at home with LibGX because a lot of the stuff in there is just a simplified version of LibGX. Okay, and that I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's your book, Beginning Android Games, right? Yes. Awesome. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Mario, as always. And I think that we have to at some point bring you back on and discuss some other things. In particular, I'm, I'm very much interested in the technology behind RoboVM, but I think that that in itself deserves a, a show of its own. So we'll definitely have you back on and, and talk about that. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.